0: This is In
1: Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study the history of disease.
0: And I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Okay, today we're going to talk about leprosy. Well, we're going to talk about leprosy and or Hansen's disease. And I'm going to explain why they have two separate names. I've taken over the nomenclature because that part's actually quite modern. And Hansen's disease is, I believe, now the preferred term, but I don't know that any like official changes have been made, which I think we will probably talk about more once I explain why that is. But yeah, this is also... Part of the reason for that change is because it's made its way into our modern day lexicon so effectively, right? Like we call people lepers. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of that connotation, like it's inherently negative, people have sort of tried to switch that terminology to make it a little more appropriate and a little less pejorative, which I know that we both can get behind. Absolutely. Because like when you call someone a
1: leper, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the disease. It is about that. That social pariah kind of aspect, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. The name leprosy itself actually comes from the Greek, which I am quite sure will shock absolutely (laughs) no one. And they already had this word lepra, which meant a disease that turns the skin scaly, which in turn came from the word lepos, which meant peel or scale. And then there was also a Latin word lepra, which was also the name of the disease, So the word leper that we now know to mean someone who is suffering from leprosy actually was the name of the disease itself. And then as it shifted through Middle English to Modern English, it became the name of the person suffering from the disease rather than the actual disease. Now, the name Hansen's disease came from Dr. Gerhard Henrik Armauer Hansen. (laughs) He was a Norwegian doctor and he first discovered the bacteria, no Koch here. Um, And so... Using his last name, the discoverer, as the name of the disease is becoming a more commonly accepted term. Quick aside, I did a little bit of investigation into Dr. Hansen, and he was a bit of an odd duck. So basically in 1873, he discovered the bacteria, and he discovered it in all of the tissue samples of people with leprosy, but he wasn't able to stain them with a dye, which means that he couldn't actually like take photographs of them or research them more effectively. And he also couldn't show that they were actually the cause of the disease. He just saw that they were in all the samples. But then he gave those samples to a friend of his in 1880. And that friend took them back to Germany, where they had developed all these new staining techniques, um, managed to stain them, and then immediately published the research himself without mentioning Dr. Hansen at all. So, of course, there's this big dispute over who really discovered the bacteria. And he was trying to prove that, like, He had really done this, and he was sort of at the forefront of all this leprosy research. So in his desperation, Hansen inoculated a female patient with leprosy in the eye without her consent. No, thank you. No, that's horrible. She obviously complained, and so he was fired from his medical position, but he was allowed to keep his position as the chief leprosy medical officer because he was, like, the expert. (sighs) Yeah, I can't. Just thinking about that sentence makes me laugh. So this firing led to a lot of the Norwegian legislation that protects patients from unwanted medical interventions. So that's great. Um, and his lifetime of work on leprosy made Bergen, Norway, the main place in Europe where people would seek care for the disease. In a lot of other ways, he honestly seemed super progressive for his time. He was a pronounced atheist. He was a proponent of Darwin's theory of evolution, both of which were relatively radical. And also, throwback, he actually got syphilis back in the 1860s and lived with it and then finally died of probably related causes in 1912 after suffering various strokes and what have you as side effects. So that's why it's called Hansen's disease.
1: It's <laughs> nice to know that the link between syphilis and leprosy is starting with Dr. Hansen himself, and then we're going to we're gonna keep that theme going for the entire episode.
0: Ooh. Okay, the disease itself. Hansen's disease and I apologize, I suspect I'm going to be going back and forth between Hansen and leprosy. I will try my best, but I also think in terms of, you know, where it's called that historically we might allow it.
1: Mostly when, uh, well, in the scholarship, when you talk about leprosy, you're talking about the pre-modern disease. So like, let's say arbitrarily up until about 1900. And then from, from the discovery of the mycobacterium, is when they normally start calling it Hansen's disease.
0: And, and we'll get a little bit more also into like some of the proponents of the name change in my section. Hansen's disease, let's say then, is an infectious disease caused by one of those tricky mycobacterium. I wrote it out phonetically so I wouldn't mess it up again. <laughs> this one is called mycobacterium leprae. And it was described in one resource as being acid fast. And I got all freaked out. And I was like, oh, man, that's really fast. It's not terrifying at all. Um, That's not what that means. (laughs) It means that the bacteria does not get decolorized by lab acids. And the disease slash bacteria is actually very slow moving. So total opposite of the thing that I thought.
1: Um, (laughs) But because of your reaction, I will forever remember what that means.
0: (laughs) Uh, So similar to other infectious diseases we've talked about, it gets transmitted from infectious people through droplets that enter the body, through the eyes, nose, mouth, or other mucous membranes. But typically, you do need extended contact to get the disease. And once the bacteria enter your body, they multiply slowly, and you often don't get your first symptom until you've been infected for around five years Although sometimes it can be as short as one year or as long as 20 years. Also, despite popular opinion or historical opinion, it's actually not a very contagious disease. And something like 95% of the population are actually immune to the bacteria and just don't get sick at all. And also, it's not actually fatal. So it doesn't really cause you to die, but it does attack your skin and your nerves and it can cause deformities. So it's obviously not great for some reason i wrote let's get down to brass tacks here and <laughs> i don't know why i thought that was a good idea but let's shall we what does what <laughs> does getting down to brass tacks even mean like let's get down to the nitty gritty oh, okay <clears throat> so there are two kinds of leprosy paucibacillary and multibacillary pronunciation of both of those is highly <laughs> up for debate. <laughs> the difference between those two is that in the former, there are five or fewer pigmented and numb patches of skin on the patient. And in the latter, there are more than five. So really, it's the same disease, but the difference is in how many bacteria are present in the individual. Leprosy used to be divided with a more complex system that also referred to like less serious cases that just target skin as tuberculoid and lepromatous. And there were like five different categories, but we've shifted to this simpler system in recent years. Today, there seem to be only about 200,000, give or take, new cases reported every year. And that falls within the guidelines that were set for eliminated disease disease. For leprosy. So basically they said once we get the rates down to one per every 10,000 people, we will deem it eliminated. And to me that just goes to show how despite treatment and overall reduction in prevalence, it's a, it's still a disease that's spreading despite being called eliminated. Uh, so let's say you're one of those 200,000 and you get Hansen's disease. What are the symptoms? What does it do? Okay, so first, it targets your skin and peripheral nerves, which are the nerves that are outside your brain and spinal cord. The patient will get large sores, bumps all over their body, kind of like a rash. And the nerve damage that starts to occur will result in muscle weakness, numbness, and some other side effects. If it continues to go untreated, it can cause permanent damage to the nerves, arms, feet, legs, all of your appendages, And I mean all of them, like it also causes erectile dysfunction and other issues. It can lead to blindness, muscle weakness, which give you sort of like a claw-like hand, chronic nosebleeds, not feeling pain in the parts of your body with nerve damage. If it goes for a long time without treatment, the bones can become reabsorbed by your body and that sort of shortens and deforms your limbs a little bit. Leprosy is typically diagnosed through observation of skin marks and testing for sensitivity in those patches. Like, I I mean, I'm sure there's a more precise way of doing it, but I'm envisioning someone basically like poking a patch of skin and being like, can you feel that? Ideally, this is followed up with a skin smear that's sent to a lab and then they identify the bacteria, but that's actually not required in order to make a diagnosis, interestingly enough. Then, once you're diagnosed, you're treated with a multi-drug therapy, which is six months for less serious cases and 12 for more. And since the mid-1990s, the WHO committed to providing that treatment for free. And this treatment is actually super, super effective. So it, it cures you, and millions have been treated since the agreement with the WHO was met. Although, 2020 appears to be the end of that agreement. So let's see how that goes. And let's just not forget that while there may be only around 200,000 reported cases every year, which is not nothing, it's also worth remembering that there are probably 3 to 4 million people who are still alive today who, while they have been treated and therefore cured of the actual bacteria, still suffer from the impairments that they got while they had the disease, even though they were cured.
1: So are you saying that, for example, the the nerve damage is not reversible? Correct. Uh, And there may be damage to... um, to the brain or to the spinal column
0: eyes, especially hands are typically like, I don't know if you've seen any pictures of it, Mm -mm. but it's sort of like a, almost like a claw shaped hand and like the fingers often look shorter. And that's because of that reabsorption Mm -hmm. of bones. Like obviously once you get rid of the bacteria, the bones don't just grow back. So like once it's gone really far, they can kill the bacteria, but they can't just like undo the damage. There is also a vaccine, sort of, for leprosy called the BCG vaccine, which works on multiple diseases, and it's shown to be between 30 to 60% effective in preventing leprosy infection. But again, because so much of the population is just naturally immune to it, it mm-hmm. definitely hasn't been a focal point.
1: I was going to say, that's a really low level of effectiveness for a vaccine.
0: Yeah. It's typhoid, too, though. There's a bunch of these yeah. ones floating around there that are pretty low efficacy, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And yeah, just a final note, leprosy is another one of those diseases that's exacerbated by the absence of quality resources. So while like several of the diseases we've talked about recently, it's still present in small amounts in pretty much all countries of the world. It's way worse in low resource communities and developing areas. It's by far the worst in India, Brazil, and a few parts of Africa. And one of the important problems is that even with free treatment being made available, the people who are most likely to get the disease are the hardest to access. And then, of course, even if you do get treatment and are cured, if it's too late in the progression of the disease, there can be a long-term impact. So that's that's your overview. That's Hansen's disease.
1: Okay, so it's interesting that you should say that... Um, That it's mostly prevalent right now in low-resource communities and developing areas because in the historical sense, uh, leprosy used to be a problem everywhere pretty much until there was an effective treatment in the 1940s. But it's particularly well known for its legacies in Europe. Genetic analyses show that leprosy uh, may have evolved about 100,000 years ago. And it's believed to originate on the Indian subcontinent, but I've also seen articles saying that the bacillus itself comes from northern Africa, so there seems to be some disagreement there, but there is a lot of evidence for either of those things. So if we look at the origins in the Indian subcontinent hypothesis for a second, we do actually have skeletal evidence of that from about 4,000 years ago, so roughly 2000 BC, and those remains were uncovered in India in 2009. And the skeleton had erosion patterns that were similar to those found in medieval skeletons from Europe, who were also believed to have leprosy. So we have a solid evidence base for that, and we're able to do, if you remember what I talked about in one of our past episodes about bioarchaeology and paleopathology. So you can actually tell from skeletal remains who had these bone deformities from Uh, leprosy. There's also a text coming from India in Sanskrit called, I'm going to pronounce this badly, but Atharvaveda? Atharvaveda. Let's go with that. In any case, it is uh, potentially mentioned. Something that sounds like leprosy is referenced in this Sanskrit sacred text. And then again, something that sounds like leprosy is described, again, in another Indian work from 600 BC. It's described in a Chinese medical text from 400 BC in Galen, so uh, among the ancient Greeks in the 2nd to 3rd century, in both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. But the problem with all of these textual references is that the the disease isn't necessarily clinically recognizable, but it does share a lot of similar features with leprosy, but it could also have been a collection of chronic skin diseases. So we're not really sure. And that's always the problem with uh, retrospective diagnosis. With that caveat, Bible no, I am not doing that this week. <laughs> I do have some, some mythologies of leprosy. I've called them just like stories that are common and that are circulated as if they're true, but we don't necessarily have proof rumor and mythologies of leprosy okay so one of the stories is that members of alexander the great's army caught leprosy during the fourth century bc when they invaded india and that they brought it back into the middle east and to the eastern mediterranean on their way home and then another story another like military story is that pompey's army returns from a campaign in egypt to italy in the first century BC, and it takes the disease with the army back into the Roman Empire proper. In the same vein, Roman legionnaires are spreading leprosy into places like the British Isles. And it's also talked about as part of the Columbian Exchange, but I've included it in the mythologies because I did not check this. I just vaguely (laughs) remember reading this. And within the Columbian Exchange, there is a healthy dose of mythology and opinion. So I will let you guys go and check that out if you want to have a Google. So, leprosy was spread extensively along trade routes between the 11th and 13th centuries in the Middle East and into Europe. So, pilgrims to and from the Holy Land, crusaders, etc. If you've watched The Kingdom of Heaven,
0: it sounds like something my parents wouldn't have wanted in our house. That kind of like? <laughs> I
1: don't blame them. So if you've watched that film, *The Kingdom of Heaven*, you'll already be familiar with Baldwin IV, who was the leper king of Jerusalem in the year 1200. In Europe, there were 19,000 leprosy hospitals, and yeah, yeah, your face says it all. It was extremely common in Europe, mm-hmm. and they were really invested in um, in keeping those populations segregated from those who were healthy but the incidence of leprosy begins to decline in Europe with the exception of Scandinavia into the 14th century so it was taken to Louisiana I've just included this because I love any reference to French Canadians so (laughs) Mm -hmm. leprosy was taken to Louisiana by French Canadians or the Acadians when they were expelled from Canada in 1755 I love the story and then immigrants from Scandinavia brought another wave of leprosy to the U.S. in the middle of the 19th century when they settled in the Midwest. I think it's Minnesota.
0: I actually found a really interesting story about a leprosarium in Louisiana. Basically, it was super common in Louisiana and one of the first like official federally sanctioned U.S. leprosariums which hospital for people with leprosy was built in Louisiana for this exact reason like it continued to be a big problem there and then people were sort of sent there from all over the mm-hmm. country and it wasn't very pleasant but I will talk more about that part yeah. later.
1: So within the context of what I was reading the Louisiana and the Midwest examples were taken together to show that, like, in Louisiana, there still are cases of leprosy that people are tracing back to the story of the French-Canadians coming down, whereas in the, Mid- in the Midwestern scenario, that seems to have been contained and not spread any further. The Norwegian Daniel Danielson gives an unprecedentedly precise clinical description of leprosy in the 1840s, and uh, the, the man we were already talking about, his son-in-law, it is the same person, right? G. R. Maurer Hansen.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know it was a family affair. It is a
1: family affair. I always wonder about that. Like
0: he was trying to impress his father in law first. Did Daniel Danielson
1: like go out of his way to like marry his daughter to his colleague or something? I don't know. Anyway. And then I wrote nothing to do with Robert Koch on this occasion.
0: I'm glad we're both so zeroed in on him.
1: (laughs) We're looking for that everywhere. So note on historical treatments. If you follow our Instagram, which you should, at InSickness2020. You'll already know that for centuries the oil of the Cholmugra tree was used to treat leprosy and other skin conditions in India and China. Its potential use as a treatment was reported in 1854 by an English doctor working in Calcutta. And then by the 1920s, this was the mainstream treatment, and it stayed the main treatment until the 1940s with the development of these cell phones, these drugs that were finally effective against against leprosy. Yeah, it continued to be mainstream. It continued to be used despite how ineffective it was, and despite the sheer number of side effects it caused... So it was causing skin irritation, it was causing a lot of pain and discomfort, and it was causing nausea. So people were trying to administer it orally, they were trying to administer it topically, and they were injecting it as well, and none of it was really helping. In fact, it was hindering any sort of recovery. The main treatment, arguably the most effective treatment, was isolation. Bummer. But the taboo existed for a reason. It was the only effective thing that was working, I suppose. So just a note on the various... Debates surrounding leprosy. So something I talked about at the top of the episode, pre-modern versus modern leprosy, are they the same? Is leprosy in the historic sense the same as Hansen's disease? We don't really know, but clinically it seems to have changed. Another question is, was leprosy somehow more prevalent in the pre-modern period? Again, don't really know. It seems to be more about the historical idea of leprosy, and again, that that idea of a disease of the past firmly rooted in the past. Like when we think of leprosy, we don't think of it as a modern disease. We think of it as a medieval disease, something out of the dark ages, perhaps with reason, perhaps it's just the fruit of our pop culture imaginings. And the other issue that I also raised before, how can we even properly diagnose this illness in the past? To a certain extent, We can guess, but that's about as good as it gets. So a couple of like big themes and comments about the history of leprosy. The metaphorical is huge, so how we talk about disease is super important and how we speak about it and how people spoke about it in history because disease is culturally constructed. It always is. (laughs) For example, this disease was seen as a punishment, and in the Judeo-Christian tradition, shame and pollution are very much part of how uh, leprosy was diagnosed, but also how people with leprosy were being treated, because any sort of physical manifestation due to a disease was seen as a reflection of your sin.
0: Yeah, like if this happened to you, you must have done something to deserve it. Exactly. I just I just interrupted your throw a thought, but I think that's so interesting cuz like on the one hand, there was this very thematic Christian behavior that was saying help those who suffer and there are many saints who are seen as the being the people who like cared for the ill, lepers specifically. But then like also for the majority of the population, it seemed to be this like injunction to to stay the way. Mm -hmm. How how both?
1: It could definitely be both. And um, you did also have people suffering from leprosy who were seeing it as their opportunity for penance, but I'm going to get into that. I think it's really useful to think about leprosy alongside something like syphilis. So we talked about syphilis in a previous episode, and we touched on the problems with disfiguring illnesses and like the crisis that resulted from all of these epidemics. So the symptoms of syphilis and leprosy were often confused in the early modern period, but the diseases seem to have carried a very different cultural baggage. So lepers, even though they were ostracized from society, they were still cared for by the church, and it was seen as this like Christian duty to take care of them as, as like a body of poor, sick people. But people with syphilis were cast out, so I was thinking maybe it's the sexual aspect that differentiates them, but definitely both carry a stigma. And in my research, I also came across a few instances of people arguing that poor people in the Middle Ages might have actually tried to get diagnosed with leprosy in order to gain the right to beg. Because begging was not allowed otherwise. But if you were a leper, that came with a couple of perks, I guess. (laughs) If your life already sucks that badly. (laughs) Perks. (laughs) Because, yeah, there were actually quite... They were actually quite stringent in their requirements for what is a leper. So diagnosis was really important, and they had these really like mm. stringent guidelines, and it was a collaboration in in medieval Europe between uh, between church authorities and between uh, the judicial system. So you whether or not you got diagnosed with leprosy would kind of determine whether or not you get to participate in society and to what extent you can do that. So it really affected people's livelihoods.
0: That's wild. Right? That's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. So those, like, depictions of people in medieval movies, like, wrapped in rags and whatever, is actually quite accurate. Yeah, of that's those. them. That's interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so especially in Western scholarship, for reasons we've talked about before, Disfiguring diseases tend to command the attention and the attention of, of publics past and present and cause a lot of fear. So diseases such as leprosy, smallpox, measles, anthrax, and syphilis will get lumped together in a lot of scholarship on this because in that Christian tradition, we're focusing on sin, shame, and pollution. And a disfiguring illness would be seen as a punishment, but also as an opportunity for penance. So suffering is seen as a good thing for many because through suffering, you can like purify your soul. They were kind of segregating populations so they couldn't spread their disease and keeping them in lazars and lazar houses or leprosaria. But it was also so that they couldn't spread their sin. And that was, and I kind of wonder if that's that long-standing reaction to leprosy in Europe somehow primed these authorities for the epidemics of syphilis that hit them in the 15th and 16th centuries but I'll leave that to someone else to write that thesis. Are
0: there any aspiring PhD in history listeners? (laughs) You've been given three to four solid ideas of these episodes so listen up.
1: (laughs) At least three or four. There's this fascinating book 2007 monograph by Luc de who argues that in the pre-modern period, physicians do not consider leprosy a disease of the soul, but a disease of the whole body or cancer of the whole body. So it's considered incurable, but it's still producing lots of therapeutic and preventive treatments. And his whole book is about these like two coexisting realities. So you have the, the moralistic interpretation, which argues that Lepers will be stigmatized and will be removed from society and will be seen as dead before they're even dead and, and kept that way. But alongside, you have this concerted effort by physicians and by judicial authorities to put out all of these therapeutic and preventive treatments. So these two things seem to be opposed, but Demetres is arguing that they actually kind of work together. So the European story of leprosy is super well known, but what I loved about researching this disease is that there are so many global studies. Attitudes towards leprosy are are well documented for China and the Middle East as well as India, and there's a huge body of work that's been done about that. So what all all of these studies show is the extent to which religious belief, and belief more generally, affected the social status of people suffering from leprosy. Leprosy is feared, those suffering are stigmatized but for example in china attitudes towards leprosy are heavily influenced by buddhist and taoist concepts of salvation uh, which stress redemption and you see that in in confucianism as well and at the same time there are lots of parallels with the european early modern segregation practices and there's such an interesting argument that's made about about Western uses of leprosy to orientalize the disease and, again, that, like, pushing of blame. So in the 19th century, leprosy becomes known as the Chinese disease, especially in the U.S., which is super fun. Does it? Yeah. According to this book, Mm. at least, the author, who is uh, Angela ki Che leong and that's from her 2009 book, Leprosy in China, A History, she calls this traumatizing for asian cultures and prompting a number of policy decisions that are focused on on like eugenicist tools being used to stem the tide of leprosy so like forced sterilization institutionalization
0: attempting to contain
1: the affected populations against their will
0: because there was a period of time when they thought that it was it was like hereditary right Mm -hmm. so
1: non-biological factors as always are super important for how we view those who are ill with leprosy and there are some excellent examples in there of the link between belief and public health and and belief and how we treat people suffering from disease and the othering of those who are visibly ill so i would say that leprosy is the test case for theories of, of contagion and how they operate gosh
0: an awfully grim picture
1: it is yeah Well, I'm here to tell you that it has not
0: completely gone away.
1: (laughs) And here we were hoping to bring back the joyful tone
0: of the first few episodes. (laughs) I do try to end on quite a chipper note, I promise. So let's talk about how this has changed over time. And I'm definitely not arguing that we are still in the dark slash Middle Ages. I think a lot has changed, but I just want to make sure that we draw a distinction between how a disease is portrayed and the reality of how people who live with it live with it because one can change much more than the other. So I'm sure it comes as no surprise that I want to talk about what were traditionally called leper colonies and I'm going to do so in the context of a modern case study much as Angel did with typhoid. Interestingly enough and maybe it's just the time of year. But when I was reading about this, I kept thinking about residential schools, just in time for Canada Day. Good times. And for those listening, when we are recording yesterday was Canada Day. Happy Canada Day. Or maybe
1: not so happy Canada Day, given what you're about to talk about.
0: Yeah. Let's remember that we can be happy to be given the opportunities that we have in Canada while still trying to remember some of the atrocities committed Mm -hmm. in making it Canada. Anyway, so brief overview for those who may not know. Residential schools were essentially evil boarding schools for indigenous peoples of Canada. What the colonizers did is they removed children from their families, alienated from their culture and language. Um, These schools were rife with abuse. It was hugely problematic. And we tend to think of those schools as places that existed in the past. That was something that was done long before any of us were around. And the thing is, that's not true. The last federally funded residential school closed in 1996, which was not long ago. in our lifetime. And in fact, there are... Very much so. And there are still programs where youth come down from northern provinces where resources are not redistributed. They board them with foster families and they go to high school in bigger towns. And to me, that has really strong reflections of residential schools, even though they are not the same sanctioned concept. And I would highly recommend to Canadians or others to listen to the podcast Thunder Bay, which has some really interesting reflections on the lives of indigenous kids. Um, in Northern Ontario and elsewhere. I'm going to go check that out. It's really good and very upsetting, but very well done. So in any case, I feel that these leper colonies or the hospitals or sites dedicated to treating leprosy, which were called leprosariums, really gave a very similar vibe as these residential schools. Back when the cause and the treatment of leprosy was unknown, Um, It's a little bit more understandable, like Angeliki was saying, why people with leprosy were quarantined, right? It it was just seen to be the best way to stop other people from getting the disease. And these colonies, these isolated places dedicated to house people who were suffering from the disease, were designed to separate infected people from people who were scared of getting it. And it's a disfiguring disease. And that meant that the people who were infected with it attracted a lot of tension, all of it negative, And there were very few champions for their rights over the years. There were some, and they are noble to the extreme, arguably, because many of them had to completely give up their lives in order to try and help these people suffering from Hansen's disease. Eventually, leprosariums became much more a place for treatment than prisons. But they were still very much about containment. And given that the cure wasn't really discovered until 1940, I think it's already hard for us to say that that's a thing of the past, right? 1940 was really recent. A lot of people who were working in the field of medical treatment, a lot of people who suffered from the disease, thought that the stigma would change. And it just didn't. It's not that easy. This stigma is way worse in places where the disease is really common, But again, it's even become a part of our language. We call people lepers still. And the problem is these leper colonies where people were forcibly alienated from the rest of society stayed open for many years, even following that identification of a treatment and cure. So 1940 already wasn't that long ago. And even after that happened, these colonies and places still existed and the stigma still existed. So there's all these things that lead up to saying, have the perceptions and attitudes towards this disease and people suffering from the disease really changed And the answer is very much arguably no. Not to say that they haven't changed at all, but is it that much different? So, okay, this is where that parallel with these residential schools sort of emerges. This idea that this historical thing that we acknowledge was so terrible is really far removed, and yet it's basically still happening amongst us. That being said, let's move on to the case study. I am primarily going to talk about the U.S. colony that was set up in Hawaii called Kalaupapa. And this was set up in 1866 on a very remote peninsula of a Hawaiian island called Molokai. At the time, or yes, I believe at the time, Hawaii was actually the kingdom of Hawaii, which factors in later. It was not yet a U.S. state. So, Over about the 150 years or so that this colony was open, a total of 8,000 patients lived there. And by lived there, I do mean were forcibly removed from their families and relocated to this remote peninsula to live out the rest of their lives. So here's what was happening at that point in time. In the U.S., pre-1940, scientists knew Hansen's disease was caused by a bacteria, but they did not know how to treat, prevent, or cure it, except for those... Nut oils. Therefore, federal policy, like law, was just to isolate anybody who showed symptoms. And in some places, that isolation was far crueler than others. So, like we were talking about Louisiana, in the facility there, When it first opened, patients stayed in slave huts. They were segregated by gender. They had an on-site jail for you if you tried to leave where they would quite literally shackle you and they were surrounded by iron fencing. Like it was not a nice place to be. So in the U.S. from 1917 onwards, you could voluntarily or involuntarily go to a leprosarium if you had the disease, right? So if you wanted treatment, you could go on your own or you could be sent there. But once you were there, you could not leave. That was it. So let's go back to Hawaii. Kalaupapa was isolated in every single way possible. And the people who were living there were certainly not there of their own free will. But in some ways, they still managed to create this very real life and community. And in fact, over 1,000 of them fell in love and got married and, you know, went to church and had dances and, you know, tried to live as full a life as they could in this community. Because of the restrictions of their isolation, if they fell in love and got married, if they had children, those babies were taken away from the colony. They knew babies couldn't be born with leprosy. They had by that time figured out it wasn't hereditary. So they let them get pregnant and have children. But then they took them away so that they wouldn't grow up in a place where they might get infected. And so those children were adopted out. If they had visitors in this super remote location, those visitors were separated from them by a chain link fence or they were forced to stay in different houses where the windows were made of chicken wire, which is a literal physical barrier reminding them that they were essentially prisoners. So I think it's obvious that there are a lot of human rights violations going on here, right? Like not the least of which is that this leprosy act requiring that they stay isolated remained in place in most of the United States until 1946, which is six years after there was a viable treatment that literally cured the disease. And here's where the kingdom of Hawaii part comes in. Hawaii formed their law about mandatory banishment When it was still its own kingdom. And so it had a separate legal process that I do not know about whatsoever, which meant that they could repeal that law on their own. They did not repeal their law on mandatory banishment until 1969. Wow. Yeah. Were they offering effective treatment in the colony? They were treating people there. There were people living on the island that post-1940s were cured they were cured they just weren't allowed to come
1: back from the leper colony yeah they were lepers okay so they were completely they were completely changing their legal status by virtue of a disease yes great
0: great so in 1969 the law in hawaii changes and now there are all these people who have lived their entire lives on this island basically totally removed from the world and they're finally allowed to leave and a lot of them were like um i think we'd actually just rather stay here like i don't really want to be a part of that world like there's all these abandonment issues with the government their family how to reintegrate into a world that literally banished them right like that's super complex so some were offered an annual stipend of like $46,000 um to leave and go home or restart their lives um those who were really elderly were offered placement in an old folks home Um, but a lot of them really just decided they would stay and live their lives out there um because that was just where they'd always lived and so this is what brings me to this crazy fact about leprosy in the modern day Not only was that legislation about mandatory banishment not technically abolished until 1969, but because that was so recent, there are still people living in Hawaii's leper colony. They're really old. They're like in their 80s and 90s, but they are still alive and they are still living there. And I think that just makes it super real, not only how dramatic that stigma continues to be, obviously much, much worse in places where leprosy is more common in like india but also how recent all of these atrocities were i mean i understand now why you why you were making that parallel with the
1: residential schools because it is something that is horrifying that feels like it should only be in history books (laughs) but that is very recent and that we still feel the effects of not not we but but that individuals still feel the effects of and are still trying to rebuild their lives after.
0: Yeah. And on that note, there are people who are still discovering like now recently that their parents were actually people who were restricted to this colony and that their adoptive families, I mean, most of them grew up knowing that they were adopted, but did not know what the reason behind that adoption was and it's because their parents were living in a leper colony and weren't allowed to keep their babies it seems i think quite reasonably that those people who still live there in many ways feel super hurt and isolated from the greater world by more than just their physical placement there's a really good atlantic article about that yeah and i I think this historical context is really fascinating because i don't know about you but when i think about like a leper colony i think you know nurses with really stiff starched white hats like in their nun uniforms and this like old stone building and everything is in black and white it's like well not quite whoopsies i mean we talked last time
1: about um typhoid mary and how she was memefied i think very much that about leper colonies and people with leprosy more generally i think we kind of we disembody them don't we in our in our
0: imagination Absolutely. And that is a really great segue into my next point, which is slightly more tripper, which is one of the most interesting accounts about this colony on Kaluapapa is a book, an autobiography by a woman named Olivia Robello Braitha. And when she was 18, she was diagnosed with Hansen's disease and was forcibly relocated to the Kaluapapa um colony in 1934 and while she was affected by the disease the treatment became available only about six years later in the 40s and so she was cured and while she chose to continue living on the island when it opened up in 1969 like making it her home base she also began to like travel the world and experience life that had been taken away from her and she really seems like this woman who lived her life very fully and very joyfully she was married three times while living in the colony although she chose not to have children because they were taken away i just just really look forward to reading this book it's apparently not very long but really lovely and she was actually one of the main proponents for the use of the term hansen's disease against leprosy right she likened to using leprosy as like using a racial slur And she was also a super big part of getting this Hawaiian legislation passed that protected the personal liberty, autonomy, and dignity of the people who were sent to Kalaupapa. She just seems like a very motivated, interesting person. So this is my case study example of this, like, this stigma that's faced by people who are infected with Hansen's disease. And I think what's important to remember is that just because we don't talk about it that much anymore does not make that specific issue resolved. We certainly have less cases in North America, but in places like India, the arrival of treatment, even free treatment, has not actually improved the way that people with the disease are treated by other humans. Now, I will say that my positive ending note and my takeaway is this badass woman. Like one thing that I think we find so rarely in any investigation of these diseases is a firsthand account, right? Scientists talking about it, commentaries on the state of the world, people examining what it must be like to live this disease, what we are doing right now. None of that's bad It's and it's pretty common, but to hear from people about their own lived experience is so important and it's really amazing. And, I wish people who were suffering from this and pretty much most other diseases were given more of a platform. And again, I couldn't help but think about Typhoid Mary. Like, her voice was very much lost in all of that. And so this woman seems compelled to action, an activist, and someone who really enjoyed her life despite what was thrown at her Mm -hmm. by this, like, really unfair and exclusionary... Legislation that defined her based exclusively on her disease, as you so well said. I mean, she's very much an exception
1: as as a, a patient who has been marginalized, but also as a woman coming, a ga- coming of age in the early 20th
0: century. When she arrived at the leper colony, they basically gave them almost like a prison, like headshot kind of thing with like your name and the date and whatever. And there's a picture of her refusing to hold that sign up, um, which again, I have not read this autobiography. Mm-hmm. So please don't hold me to task for everything about her because I don't know, but it seems like a very good symbol oh, of. Uh, her rebellion against what was happening to her. She, she reminds me of some of the suffragettes. It's very much that vibe. So that's my Hansen's disease win. Amazing.
1: I don't know that I have any concluding thoughts today. Like That was a bummer, but it was still a really interesting exploration of mm-hmm. uh, all of these themes that we love to talk about. I guess the the one thing we haven't really touched on that we would normally be talking about this episode... And any episode is um scapegoating mm-hmm. i I was seeing some parallels between like what I've read about Jewish communities in medieval Europe and how they are scapegoated mm. and the way that
0: and ghettoized and
1: ghettoized in the same way that people suffering from leprosy were as well, like the mm. demarcation of those individuals as different even beyond the mm-hmm. physical manifestation of the disease like. They would have funerals for people diagnosed with leprosy even before they had actually died to signal their exit from society and they would force them to um, either
0: ring a bell or wear specific clothing to mark them out. I think an individual scapegoat, no, but I think this idea of, like, scapegoating the community of lepers as a whole is for sure a real one. Like, people were so scared of it that, like, yeah, they had a bell to announce their presence. People would, like, throw rocks to drive them away. And there's this very interesting watercolor that's on our Instagram from 1917 that depicts people fleeing in the face of a leper and being so scared that one of them actually left their baby by the side of the road as they ran. So... Yeah, it would be interesting to to find out more about how mm-hmm. um, the communities were maybe blamed for, like, corrupting yeah. with sin. Because
1: one of my big challenges for this episode is that there is such a huge scholarship on the history of leprosy, which is amazing because people have been yeah. fascinated about, about leprosy and its history and its cultural signifiers because it is such a good test case for um, how we think about how we think about uh, physical manifestations of disease. Should we do a hooray? Sure. Uh, Why don't I go first for once? Yeah. Tell me your hooray. My hooray is still the Eurovision movie. It was amazing. (laughs) It was probably (laughs) the best thing I have watched in lockdown. It made me so happy. It was so joyful and sweet and I love the music and they didn't take the easy way out with any of the characters either like I came into that movie fully ready to hate on the Russian quote-unquote villain who I thought was going to be a total predator actually
0: turned out to be really nice (laughs) I really liked that but I will say my favorite thing is that I especially through high school was obsessed with Eurovision I loved it but my favorite part of this was all the past Eurovision contests that had their little cameos, specifically Alexander Ryback. Yes. Who is the guy with the violin. I remember him in 2009. Well. I loved him. I'm in love with a fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> my hooray is something, two things I've already told you about. One is I went outside to get like a little vitamin D. And there was this older woman from my apartment building who had brought like a Full sun lounger out and had like a little drink and a cozy and a book and some headphones in, and just like set up this recliner in the middle of the public space and was like going for it. Like, she is iconic.
1: I aspire to that life. That is my goal. 100%. My 10 year plan is that.
0: <laughs> and my second hurray is that I made goat cheese from scratch for the first time ever and I nailed it and it was delicious I'm and so I feel very accomplished. proud of you. You've done so good. I mean, good. considering the amount of goat cheese I ingest, it's very important that I learn how to make it.
1: <laughs> I'm going to start looking around for some goat's milk because that the idea of making goat cheese really appeals to me. I feel the same way. Um, thank you for joining us. This has been a blast. Um, next time, we don't know what disease we're doing, but we will let you know soon. <laughs> and
0: I miss you. It's been really fun. I miss you. And one day we'll figure out a formulaic way of ending our podcast but today is not that day (laughs) okay good night bye thank you for listening to in sickness researched and hosted by angelic and maya intro track and logo by adrian morningstar sound editing by maya